Warning. This series has depictions of gendered violence and some coarse language. Please use your discretion when listening. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not replace medical advice. Like I had one friend of mine whose lawyer literally said to her, it would be easier if he'd hit you, if you had bruises or something. Because if you don't, then it makes it very difficult for family court. Considering the age my daughter was when we first started the whole family court at 18 Mm -hmm. months, um, really isn't giving her the care that she needs. Well, selfishly, I would like for it to be a crime, like, for the perpetrators. If I really do have CTE, I I would love for him to be able to be charged with um, attempted murder. The risk comes in two ways. One, through the judicial system and um, equally uneducated uh, front lines in the the judicial system not recognizing that traumatic brain injury does not in and of itself mean that a woman can't parent. When you consider the context in which women who've been in intimate partner violence are often treated, it does make sense that this might be used against them. Episode 7, The Scales of Justice. To a police officer, she can appear drunk and combative without the context of a recent head injury. To a family court, she's disorganized and forgetful. Without the context of brain injury, a woman may look like an inadequate parent in the eyes of family court. In criminal court, without robust victims' rights and system-wide education, she is unprotected. Her trauma goes unrecognized, left with feelings of being re-victimized. Let's meet with Lady Justice. I'm Laura, and this is I Love You. I had looked at an apartment and was trying to consider my options, but um, I couldn't just up and leave her. I'd be abandoning my child, and if I took her, I'd be kidnapping her. So, you know, unless I could prove that there was something really going on, but authorities don't want to hear, oh, he yells at me, or he knocked a lamp over, you know. It, it's, we get it now having lived through it and, and seen what it really was. But at the time, I'm, I'm like, I don't really have, because I'm still very gaslighted at that time. So all of that, that's why I didn't leave. Like, I, I couldn't, you know, some people might say it's because the house, you lose your right to the house. I could care less about the money. I can, oh, no. I tell you, I have lost thousands of dollars. That's a whole other conversation, a whole other conversation about how family court and criminal court and all this don't speak to each other. Because with how much I, I'm worth because of my job um, and my pension, Okay. I ended up owing him $68,000. Yeah, I had to pay him $68,000 in an equalization payment. The, the sad thing is, is the, the courts are, are there for them, not us. This is a sentiment that was shared with me repeatedly, that victims' rights in North America are flimsy at best. Many of these women had hope they would not come out worse off through the process, but most were not surprised that they did. I have a very distinct memory of sitting around a table with, because the group of ladies I, I was very fortunate to meet um, who were who all victims of violence. I remember we've 
largely stayed in touch even since then over the last couple of years. And I remember sitting around the table with them at one point and we were sharing our latest updates and looking around the table of 10 women. And for eight of us, the courts have been involved. And for all eight of us, they had completely failed us, completely failed us. Mine got an absolute discharge. So that means no, no record, no record, no nothing. I, it, this is, this kind of brings me to what one of your last questions was, is that mm-hmm. I've, I've understood that he was charged with assault and not assault causing bodily harm. I strongly feel that considering I am to this day still affected by that brain injury, that that is bodily harm. But mm-hmm. when I asked the police and when I asked the Crown Attorney, they both said, oh, no, but they'll charge them with what they think they can stick them with. So clearly brain injury is not considered enough bodily harm. Brain injury is a hidden disability, hard to prove and easily discredited as mental health complaints. Even after this survivor's attacker got an absolute discharge, he continued to try and work the system to his benefit. Not even a word of a lie, but two days ago, three days ago, um, he's uh, he had been working for um, uh, um, uh, a charitable organization, I'll leave it at that, as a uh, as uh, in their head office, and um, they didn't know about what had happened. And a year later, when they found out, um, not for me, um, but they did find out. I don't know how, but they did. They let him go. Um, they said it was for restructuring because they didn't want the bad press. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know it was for this because it came to me through his lawyer that this was what happened. They, his lawyer said it to my lawyer in a letter. Um, and so he's not been gainfully employed since then. He's been sitting on a ton of money because remember that large yes, equal payment all, I paid you him. You to give him all a lot of money. I gave him all my money out of my share of the, the house sale. So he had his share and my share. So he was sitting, my guess, between that and then because they let him go for restructuring purposes, they gave him six months of pay. Oh, like severance? Okay. Severance. So I think he was sitting on $155,000 was what I had I had assumed from that. And and the only job he can find in meaningful work happens to be in the building that my chain of command is in and I've got staff in and I'm, I'm there three times a week. And I have been, I've even been located there myself full time for 11 and a half years. And, and he knows that he, it is for, for where I work. It is, it is the nexus of everybody who does what I do in in my department, they're all there. And of all of the places in the city, that's where it is. And he was harassing me through the text to try to get me um, to let him out of his peace bond because, and even saying, well, I think we can both agree that it's in our daughter's best interest that I have been <gasps> work. It was literally, I have, I have that in a text and I'm like, no, I think, I think it's in our be- daughter's, I didn't say this back to him, but in my opinion, it's in our daughter's best interest that I'm not uh, a crumbling piece of, of, you know, just fear every time I walk into into the building. Yes. I call into my boss's office, or I need to go see my staff, or or have turn to go your there. corner. Exactly. I, I've I've got a reputation as as someone with with some authority and and a lot of experience at at work. And and uh, although I haven't necessarily shied away from my my story per se, um, I don't bring it up there, and I certainly don't no. want to, you know, seeing him get triggered into a crumbling a crumbling fool at work. So far, between providing him her pension portion and part of the family home sale proceeds, she has little feeling of equity in the situation. He continues to use the system as a means of intimidation. So I, I, I ended up 
I was talking with with Karen, and she had advised that uh, that I I even go to my employer if I felt comfortable with it, and I did. Yeah, I did. And uh, and and I don't know. Either he's in the building on Monday or not. I don't know. I'll, I guess I'll I'll find out next week. I've made it clear what my place of work is, or what my workplace is, and and how I frequent it, because those are the words in the peace bond and in the non-harassment order in the family court uh, order. You. And I said, and then I said, I expect you. Um, uh, I said it's up to you to to ensure that you do not violate those the terms of your peace bond or or the non-harassment order. So I had to ask the survivor that after such violence at his hands, if he had access to their daughter. He does. That was. How does that? That was feel? very difficult. Um, I've gotten a bit more used to it, um, but it's uh, at first it it felt horrible. It, I was so scared because I felt like I'm handing her over to an attempted murderer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know you said another woman used those terms. Those terms were used by friends to me about what he should have been charged with for sure. Um, it it felt really. At first, it was just ad hoc uh, visits. It was supervised. Um, and uh, now he's got some overnights. Um, he's actually got her tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard. Hard and traumatic. And now has to hand her daughter over in hope that his violence doesn't extend anywhere else. You might remember our next survivor who bit her husband's nose to get him to stop strangling her. The fear and trauma follows her still. The courts are not on her side or that of her sons. Do you still feel afraid of him? Absolutely terrified of him. I spent um, many years hiding from him. We left where we lived, the city we lived in, my son and I. I had to wait, oh geez, six months to get approval from a judge to take my son out of state. So why did it take this long? Court delays in getting approval to have full custody and and leave. It was ridiculous. I had a protection order at the time. However, um, the law did not apply to him at all, ever. So he would come to the house and tried to get in late at night and he would bang on the bedroom wall and scream outside the window and he just terrorized us and and my son you know he had just turned three when all of it went to pieces and you know he he remembers parts of it and he couldn't sleep i couldn't sleep That was the worst six months of my life. I'd never been so scared. Yet this clearly dangerous man was allowed to be free, creating further and lasting damage. The court did not uphold her or her son's right to life and freedom, as her attacker screamed outside her home and attempted to enter with no repercussions. Power and influence can help an accused get their needs met and have the outcome they desire, using connections to work the legal system to their own benefit. He's a well-known artist. He, people with connections and money buy his art, and they are 
some some things are going on. I, and I and you know, it sounds like it's out of a movie, but no, um, it's not. That's, it's real that's, life. That's that's real where life. movies get their script from. Is from real life. I mean, there's. I mean, everybody is not honest, and um, in little small towns where people know each other and certain people have some power and they, oh, they know the judge and they know this and they all just uh, do things behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't think of any other reason besides the only other possibility I want to, you know, say don't go down the negative road is to say that because there's no pictures of bruises, there's no pictures of broken arms that they can't see the injury that that the brain injury is maybe it's hard to get a jury to understand it or see it and that's where i feel like that research is so important mm-hmm. um to to have these standardized things just like a cast shows you put a cast on a broken arm you put stitches in uh you know a gash you have standardized tests that show this brain injury that that's, you know, and then the other part is, is awareness, public awareness, because your peers, your, are the jurors. They, they need to be aware, more aware of, of these, of this kind of, this scenario. And, um, brain injuries and they need to be, there needs to be more awareness, awareness of um and less stigma around surrounding uh domestic violence this is the problem the lack of education for frontline enforcement officers and the legal system as a whole systems still dominated by men and only slowly moving forward and i have a, a order of protection they even he they even got it modified so that he can attend the same art things that I do. You're fucking kidding me. No. I pulled my art out of one of the galleries <gasps> because I was so uh, so traumatized when um <sighs> and I'm like I don't want they don't understand. Maybe he's not going to attack me in there, but that it's so traumatic and emotionally say, uh, yeah. Yeah, and who and and th- but that's even if he doesn't physically touch me He's able to gl- give me, shoot looks at me, glare yeah, at me. He's yeah. able to emotionally abuse me. Clearly, his employment needs trump her feelings of emotional safety. She is forced out of her own industry so his needs can be met. I literally feel sick when I think about having to go into that courtroom with him sitting there and going up into a whole courtroom and trying to talk. It's going to be bad enough to, to deal with the attorney that I feel is going to attack me and traumatize me all over again. I mean, you know, it's bad enough they've got the good old boy thing going on over there. And I'm sorry, but there, there is this thing in certain areas. And this is this is another challenge that I have. It depends on where this is happening. This court where he lives is a very rural area with a certain way of thinking. And the men mm-hmm. all stick together I yeah. could have been paralyzed. I could have been put in a coma. I could have died. Um, what's going to happen if he gets away with this and he feels more empowered and he'll he'll find another person like me? I have no yes. doubt. Yeah. And they're not going to know about this. And what's going to happen to them? 
it's, it scares me to think of it. Nothing in his life had to change. He tried to kill her, and his life remains as it was, free to grow his career, seek out a relationship, live his life to the fullest. I'd like to introduce you to Isabel. She works with the Brain Injury Society of Toronto. One of her roles is to act as a guide and support through the judicial system. Well, definitely family court is something that I've attended a lot, and not only family court, but criminal court in terms of the you know, women going up against their abusers, especially for criminal injuries and whatnot. I had one client who was going to have to testify against her ex, but, you know, I always go with them to meet with the victim witness people and have discussions with those individuals and kind of explain to them what the court process is going to be like. So if they go and talk to the person, I'm there. I know what the next steps are going to be. So even if they forget or they get overwhelmed or they don't understand, I'll also be there to re-explain, like, you know, she or he just said, this is what's going to happen next. And these are your options for, you know, testifying, you know, like, um, I'm a really big advocate of not making these women go up in the same room as him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I always, always ask for them to be on video from a different room. Um, another thing that I discovered that some courthouses have, which I was really personally excited about, is that if you're really, really under dis in distress and you're not excited, of course you're not excited about being there, but some courthouses offer therapy dog programs. And you can actually request to have a therapy dog come when you are testifying from the other room and you can sit waiting and just hug and pet and cuddle this therapy dog. I've had, so I've had some women who will only go to court if the dog is going to be there. Oh, wow. Like they're super excited about having the dog and it makes them feel. And also with some women, their children have to be present as well. Oh my God. So having the dog there present for the children as well is a huge thing for some people. Um, I know it would be for me. Like if I had to take my daughter to court to testify against somebody, I would definitely want her to feel comfort somehow. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's really nice that they, that they do that. The criminal courts, I guess are a little bit, different sometimes it, I guess it depends what exactly it is that they're being charged that they've been charged with yeah. um, if it's a pretty violent assault it, it depends on the circumstances a lot of our people get charged with theft you know theft under things like that and usually the theft under like is they stole a liquor bottle from the LCBO mm -hmm. um, you know and I had a client who stole a liquor bottle because she had to go back to a shelter and she had this woman that she was rooming with who stole a bunch of her stuff. And so she was planning on trading the bottle of alcohol for her clothing back. This is why it's good to have people like myself who go into court because then we can also advocate with the diversion people, explain what the situation was, why this person did this, you know, explain kind of the extenuating circumstance of why this person decided to go this route. So hopefully the court will kind of understand and rather than give them a full out, you know, charge and sentence, they typically will get mental health diversion, which is great in one sense because it's probably better for them. And some people just don't need to be in jail that, you know, in, are in court. No. So, but on the flip side, once again, it's mental health diversion. But when they work with us, it's, they get their mental health worker and they also get their brain injury worker. So I try to work with as many teams as I possibly can so that the client gets kind of a wraparound service, like the brain injury service and the other agency they're working with. And all the agencies so far that I've spoken to are very happy to have us around because brain injury is just not one of those things that people just immediately recognize. It takes a lot more time with people. It takes a lot more conversations with people and kind of pulling those things out of them. 
Working with survivors of brain injury and intimate partner violence, she takes time to pull out the history, understand her client's symptoms. This nuanced work takes a great deal of patience and a great deal of time. I just kind of started realizing that there were other ways of getting these women things that they needed, like, and criminal injuries was the first thing I tapped into, and I've gotten them some great settlements for those things. And I also realized through that that when they were getting settled for their criminal injuries claims, that was the thing, because a lot of these women didn't report their assaults. Especially not, sexual yeah. assaults. The sexual assaults were a big one because they'd gotten to a point where they'd been groomed to just kind of with the PTSD, except that, you know, this is my fault. I've done something to make him angry at me. I've done something, you know, this is my life. I attract these people, you know. They just kind of accepted this was the path they were going to go down. Mm-hmm. And the criminal justice system obviously didn't really help out much because they weren't being reported. So the criminal injuries board was really a way to get these individuals to kind of have some closure because they had told their story to somebody who believed them and who was able to compensate them monetarily for that suffering that they'd been through. So I sort of learned that. And, you know, like I said, as I started talking to all of my caseload, I was noticing the patterns from childhood trauma Mm -hmm. to adult brain injuries and the pattern of intimate partner violence that was following these women throughout their lives. Isabel illustrates perfectly that this woman is more likely to have suffered other abuse in her life. Each incident reinforces her worth. She sees a pattern emerge. So, with a brain injury on board and perhaps limited supports, this woman may fear, as we have discussed, losing custody of her children to her abuser. So, why would there be a difference in this outcome between a head injury at the hands of an intimate partner and from any other cause? Karen Mason explains. When you consider the context in which women who've been in intimate partner violence are often treated, it does make sense that this might be used against them. But I think about, you know, if if I, Karen, play recreational hockey with my girlfriends every Friday evening, and one Friday evening I get a concussion playing recreational hockey with my girlfriends, I guarantee you that a child protection worker will not show up at my doorstep on Monday to seize my child. So it doesn't make sense that that might be different for this population, and yet there is a very strong, probably rational concern about that. So we definitely have to deal with it and make sure the education is out there so that women are protected. So where might this woman get the idea that she could lose custody of her children? Perhaps in the news, but more likely from her abuser, who has told her time and time again if she leaves, she will lose her kids, and her head injury will be used against her in court. A question we still are struggling with and that we'll be actually hopefully adding to the scope of our research in the next couple of years is examining the ethics of screening women for traumatic brain injury and intimate partner violence when it comes to how it might be potentially used to their detriment in things like custody proceedings for children or access to children or their abuser using it to suggest that they're not capable in a number of ways. That's really been an interesting dilemma that everyone who's doing this work has has a variety of opinions on and 
we really hope to get some clarity on that as we move forward. I think the answer is educating the legal system, the justice system, those who work in child protection to understand that a brain injury does not make someone unfit. It does make them someone who needs some extra supports and help in order to be their best self and to keep their family together. But that's been an issue that we didn't think about at the very beginnings of this project. This was an unknown and a real factor in moving forward in research. Could the information of her brain injury in the wrong hands lead to further victimization through the judicial system? The risk comes in two ways. One, through the judicial system and um, equally uneducated uh, front lines in in the judicial system not recognizing that traumatic brain injury does not in and of itself mean that a woman can't parent or that she is now damaged goods and and disability has gone beyond function. Um, and those those pieces of stigma are real and they are they are a concern to any person with a traumatic brain injury, let alone someone who's also dealing with the stigma associated with intimate partner violence. But also, um, and this is a piece that's unique to this context and is extremely important to me, you're, you may well be giving a weapon to someone who wants to use it. So mm-hmm. if someone is bent on controlling another human being and is willing to use violence and manipulation in order to achieve that, giving them the information about how best to manipulate somebody through their own cognitive challenges is a questionable practice. I definitely want to get the judiciary system and children's aid, you know, those those legal systems, some information and get them up and running. And most importantly, I want to make sure that the information is available to women survivors. They have the right to understand what is what is happening and how their lives are changed because of it, and how they can support themselves, let alone get Mm -hmm. access to other supports. There is also the real fear of shared custody and access. What about the children who have witnessed the violence and are forced to share alone time with somebody they have seen hurt their mother? Does the judicial system take their needs into account? And one of the things that I wanted was to have supervised visitation because he was abusive. And they said, but all of the time, like, but it was directed towards you. It wasn't directed towards the child. And I would name off the times that he was, um, that he put my, my daughter at risk. And, um, and they're like, but that was directed towards you. Necka McGregor from Women at the Centre, with her legal education and background, gives us a deeper understanding. We talked about how family law, women who are going through custody access battles with their ex-partners, how a diagnosis of a brain injury might be used in evidence against her, right? Her her ex might Mm -hmm. bring that up as a way to um, show that she, or suggest that she's an unfit parent, and therefore she stands a chance of losing custody of her children. So we, we engage in this really robust conversation about the the ethical efficacy validity mm-hmm. of, of telling women, right? And quickly concluded that number one, women 
have a right to know. Yes, what's going on with them. Exactly. And then it's up to them to decide. And this is, again, about giving power back, right? Supporting women taking power back. Mm -hmm. But it also, I, I talk about how it calls for a need for more training to frontline workers as well as you know, system-wide. So, for example, family law judges, judges across the board, but specifically here, family law judges. That if if a, if a, a man, an abuser, if a, a man brings up his partner's incapacity, you know, she, she's forgetful, she's whatever, if he raises us in family court, it should be a red flag, a warning sign yeah. To the judge that not to use it in evidence against her, but possibly she against caused him. It. <laughs> Thank you. Right? The reality is again that these abusive men have been using the injuries that they've caused and the impacts on the women, right? The, the adverse health impacts as a way to justify loss of custody. She and her organization have made movement forward and a plan when it comes to addressing legal and judicial issues head on. We're, we're, we're developing um, training, or we've been part of developing training for judges mm. and working with the National Judicial Institute around, um, specifically around, right now it's around uh, social context of sexual violence. So, but as part of that training, we're trying to bring in this aspect of strangulation because you know strangulation is part of some for some people it's part of the kink right kink community mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and to separate that from sort of um, consensual strangulation for want of a better word versus non-consensual acts of sexual violence and and separating. Um, that type of understanding so that so that judges have a better understanding of the impacts that women the impacts of the violence on the women and how those impacts manifest itself in you know women's behavior so that you don't judge women as not being credible because she can't remember yes yes right understanding that the 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 the, the impacts of trauma the way trauma is it's not linear Right, women don't have a linear memory. Trauma does not uh, disclose itself in a, in a linear fashion, but it's actually quite messy and intertwined and jumbled. So having judges understand the dynamics at play mm -hmm. and again the the causes of it, I think would make them better at. I know it would make them better at their job and have a better understanding. So that when a woman is sitting in front of them displaying these um, behavioral attitudes, you you attribute it correctly to the cause and not to yeah. some. Yeah. Do you feel movement on that front? Uh, I was <laughs> like, oh, to say. Uh, no, I I I actually live in hope. I'm a very okay. hope-filled person. Good. Um, but I'm also tenacious, and yes. so the fact that they, it's not moving as quickly as I would like, we are not giving up, and it, it has to move because we're not giving up. And, and some of the work that, again, going back to us as an organization, some of the work we've been doing has been, again, groundbreaking, right? We, we've been conducting um, 
court watch. So over the number of years, we've been going into the specialized domestic violence courts in Toronto to monitor trials, oh. DV trials, and shine a light on what the justice players are actually doing behind those closed doors in the courtrooms, how judges are treating the survivors on the stand, how crowns are behaving, how... And oftentimes, it's not pretty. It's yeah. really disheartening. And unless somebody shines a light on it, judges are making egregious comments. Fear, intimidation, and unfairness. She may fear losing her kids and find staying with her abuser a more safe option than antagonizing a man in court who has shown his temper and violence. She may have a protective order, but as we have heard, those are fairly easy to amend or violate. Join me in episode eight coming up next. Bright lights and ambient noises create fuzzy thinking and fatigue. Personality changes, anger and depression. Here survivors speak their truth as Lynn Hogg educates about traumatic brain injury. I'm Laura, and this is I Love You. In those moments, feel angry or saddened yeah. that you've lost that? Angry. Angry. Yeah. It's, there's not a lot. I, I found that through the whole thing um, and all of the injustice that I've had to swallow. I've, I've had to do a lot of just sucking that up. This is the way it is, you know, look forward in life and this and that. But those are the moments where, where it hits me. Um, because in, in every other way I can move on, but because of the brain injury, um, those are the moments that I can't, I spent seven and a half years going to university for the purpose of getting an executive position that now I don't feel I can do because I don't, I have the capability, but I don't have the capacity. Go to ilobeyou.ca today and click Stay in the Loop to get rare but exciting information about upcoming seasons and secret projects under works. Anyone who knows me knows my mind has been ticking away during the COVID times and plotting. So stick with me. Something exciting is coming. I'm Laura, and this is I Love You.